Good evening. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, February 11th, 2016, and this is episode 13 of Garbage. All right. On this week's episode, um, we have very little happening in OpenBSD this week, um, but we do have a whole lot of uh, follow-up to emails that you guys have been sending in, and so we're going to talk about uh, a lot of the uh, responses from you guys and try and answer a lot of questions that came in. So, But before we get into that, um, I would like to thank everyone for taking the time to write in to us and let us know what you think of the show, what you think of the content. Um, I've had a lot of people commenting on um, you know, just the material that we're covering and um, you know, the, the replies have been wonderful and I really appreciate that and I know Joshua does too. So keep sending in your thoughts and your inquiries and we'll do our best to cover those topics. If you don't like something, uh, we love hearing that and some people have said some stuff about that and if there's things you do like, we've had a lot of people saying uh, what they do like and we'll try and do more of that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I'm pretty bad at replying to emails unless there's a specific question in there. So everyone that wrote in and just said like, you guys are doing a good job, keep it up or whatever. If you didn't get a reply from us, it's uh, not because we didn't get the email. Yeah, and, and I try to make a, a point to at least put a line or two back to people, and I think I got back to most of them. Sometimes they wind up in my um, spam filter for a day or two, and then I get back to them. Um, but if I didn't, um, just know that uh, I try to. So anyway, enough on that. All right, so this week, um, one of the things that uh, was emailed to us, someone was asking about the test and release cycle for OpenBSD, and uh, they wanted to know about um, personal stories. They wanted to know about how the process works, and they wanted to know what about that process uh, allows OpenBSD to have high-quality software. So I would like to start by saying, um, first off, I think that OpenBSD's quality starts long before the release cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, the The planning and the scrutinization happens way, way, way earlier in the process. So when we review code, there are ways that people want to audit things, and there's style guides, there are best practices kind of outlined. And aside from you know just making sure that it works and it looks good, there's a lot of eyes on something before it goes into the tree. So you might have um, a person or a couple people who might sort of own a certain area of the tree. And so any change that happens to that area of the tree would have to be okayed by them. And uh, as well as, you know, getting general consensus from, you know, the developers as a whole. And I think that that is, uh, you know, really where things kind of start. People, um, usually the, the way that process works is someone will send out a diff and they say, here's this idea I have. If it's something that they're not sure you know what to do on, they'll get feedback. Um, mechanical changes like, oh, a bug fix, or I just want to change the way this data is structured, those um, go through the same kind of process, but it's a little bit different. Here's this bug, here's the problem, here's um, my proposed fix, and then people will comment and reply on that. So There's also stuff that just never makes it into the tree. People will email the, the uh, developers list and say like, here's something that I had, you know, I had to, had to code up for work or I just had to fix this, fix a problem for myself. Should we put this in the tree for everybody else? And, um, oftentimes the answer is no. Um, it's, it just doesn't make sense in the tree. It's not a good fit. It's, 
uh, weird implementation. It belongs in ports, you know, whatever it is. Um, so some of that stuff just never even gets to, uh, to that stage of, of being audited and, and put in. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, uh, t- talking about code quality and stuff, um, some of the, um, LibreSSL stuff, part of their process is to have Coverity do a scan of, uh, that code base. And, um, I think at the hackathon in, in Calgary this past year, they were doing a whole bunch of work and they would go through their process and then they would publish the code and then they would have Coverity scan it and then they would look at the results to, of the Coverity scan and decide what they wanted to do with the results of that Coverity scan. So there's a whole bunch of things that happen. There's diffs that are sent out and reviewed. There are scans that are done on the code. And I think a lot of times, too, like um, <clears throat> there are periodic audits and static code analysis of, of the tree or certain portions of the tree, just so people can kind of find that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, as after stuff goes in um, that was okayed and, and looks okay, people are running, uh, other developers are running other static analysis tools or compiling the kernel with different compilers that might uh, spit out different errors and then uh, sending those diffs to developers to say, here's what I found, this doesn't make sense, etc. Mm-hmm. And generally, um, people try and test on as many platforms as they can, but sometimes, every once in a while, there will be a weird bug or a weird um, side effect that will only happen on Spark 64 or some, you know, less standard architecture. So um, sometimes things like that take a little while to iron out as well. Yeah. Um, it's probably worth talking about the process of, like, managing diffs. Um, frequently, anytime it, it comes up on, like, Hacker News or somewhere that uh, OpenBSD still uses CVS for development, uh, people are, like, baffled th- about that and they don't understand how we're able to manage um, branches and all of this other stuff. So I guess to start with, there is only one branch in the OpenBSD um, develop or like source tree. Um, mm-hmm. There's just a head or a master, whatever you want to call it. Um, we don't work in in branches really ever. There's only been a few times when it was needed because of such massive changes like... Um, the unified buffer cache, I think, had a few SMP development had a few branches, um, but by and large, it's it's not really used. So developers just do development on their local CVS trees and then uh, email diffs around to the development list or to specific developers. Yeah, and uh, so as far as diffs go, any diff that you submit or we submit um, to the list, you want that to be against current. So you want to run CVS against the, some local mirror and get the latest source code and then run your CVS diff against that. And then also don't send in the diff using like Gmail or um, you know some other HTML email that's going to mangle the diff. You want to use something like MUT um, <clears throat> because the diffs won't apply. And something I learned early on is it's probably best to send yourself the email first with the diff get the diff out of the email, try and apply it to make sure that you haven't mangled the email in any way. And then once you are happy with that, you know, it's it's safe to send on to the list and, and kind of get feedback from there. Yeah. I mean, we don't use Git officially, but I know a lot of developers use Git locally. So they run like a CVS to Git conversion tool, and then they do everything locally with Git so they can commit 
you know, incremental patches in their local tree and then just summarize everything and spit out one final diff to email to everybody else. Me personally, I still use, uh, or I use, um, CV sync mm-hmm. to basically just fetch the entire CVS tree, which includes all of the history. And so that's fetched to a, um, directory on my laptop. And then my like user source and user ports and everything is checked out from that, uh, CV sync directory. So that way you can do all of the, the normal CVS operations like, um, diffing against the remote or updating it. So, you know, if you want to fetch the previous or just a clean version or like look at the history or whatever, you can do all that locally without having to hit in a non-CVS server. And then I have another tree that's um, checked out from CVS, from cvs.openbsd.org. Because like right now, my user source tree has like um, changes in so many different directories and stuff (laughs) that uh, I don't like what I'm running is like so different than you know, a clean tree. So I have that other clean tree. And then when I finally get something to the point where I want to send a diff about it or commit it, um, I apply that, I generate a diff from my dirty tree and then apply it to the clean tree and then send the diff from that to like the mailing list or whatever. And then I can commit uh, from that directory. Yeah, that sounds pretty similar to what I have. Um, My home directory, um, if you guys are going to do any kind of diffing um, or kernel work or anything like that, I think it's a great idea to use CVSync. Um, checking out repositories, I mean, you can get a kernel uh, source sys in you know a matter of seconds, really. Yeah. Um, I probably have twenty or thirty different um, you know source sys directories floating around my home directory just for different things I want to try with ARM and with AMD sixty four, and uh, it's really easy to kind of bounce between them <clears throat> that way. And like you're saying, if if you're ready to, you know, get something back in the trunk, grab that diff, apply it to current, and then, um, you know, run a CVS diff from there. Yeah, um, something, this is probably getting off on a, a tangent, but something related to that um, is that uh, something that I backported to the CVS that we run is the commit ID support from, like, CVS NG or whatever it's called now for, like, companies that actually still use CVS. Mm-hmm. So that any time uh, somebody does a commit across multiple file, well, any commit, but mostly across multiple files, a commit, a random commit ID is generated and stuck in the um, RCS files for each uh, file that you commit to. So it gives you kind of like a Git style um, commit hash, so you can uh, use that to find what changed in each file for for like a particular change set. And I'm still work. I've been working on this for years now. It's a project to retroactively add commit ID numbers to every um, commit across the entire tree for the entire history of the project. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to add those to the RCS files on cvs.openbsd.org so that um, every uh, change set in the history of the project will have like a distinct commit ID that if you're running like a CVS to get conversion tool that every everybody that runs that will get the same output as far as um like the history of the project just to make it easier i guess yeah weren't there issues with that in the past too like some of the conversion tools uh ran into issues with that uh it was mostly like cv sync um didn't or it wasn't parsing like those commit id lines properly in the um like in the rcs files because when you do a CV sync, it tries to figure out 
the just the revisions that changed in the RCS file and pull those down rather than pulling the entire RCS file. So it got confused as far as like what uh, what files had changed, but I think that's all been ironed out. Awesome. Okay, well, now that we've talked about diffs and auditing and all that kind of stuff, um, let's talk a little bit about um, coming up to a release. So um, I'll backtrack a little bit and say generally after we come out of a freeze and we cut a release, that's when big changes go in. Um, to give them time to like iron things out. Um, but you know, we'll kind of like do a lot of development for, you know, the six months or whatever between releases and then approaching the release time, there's kind of like an understanding that there's like an ABI freeze. So the ports can kind of have time to iron out any wrinkles. And then, um, you know, so we're not going to be doing a lot of changes that everything has to be recompiled and it has a new version and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and then the trees freeze, so um, only changes that are absolutely critical to making the release um, bug-free and all this kind of stuff will go in. And then um, what happens from there is like there's like a little bit of a time period where we let people run those and try those out and find anything that might happen um, from these uh, particular builds. And usually... Uh, everybody gets that from a snapshot, so there'll be the the freeze, and then snapshots are built, and then packages are built using those snapshots, and then the developers and everyone will run those uh, snapshots in as many places as they can, and um, and see if they can iron out any bugs. And I guess the freeze is kind of a soft freeze, right? Because if we find bugs, it's still okay to fix them at this particular point in time. Yeah, so we should mention like right now in early February, the ports tree is, is like a, a soft frozen. So mm-hmm. no new ports can be committed. You can't just commit like an update to a port unless it's something critical like a security update. Um, and then even if you want to commit something, it has to be approved by um, a few of the guys that, that manage all the package builds. Yep. And so what's happening now is people are using, uh, once all those packages get built, uh, people are testing them out on snapshots and basically finding um, bugs that need to be fixed before the actual freeze. So like something that came up today was that um, uh, MariaDB listens on only IPv6 uh, sockets by default for some stupid reason. So uh, we're going to be applying a default config uh, setting with the package to bind to um, the IPv4 uh, loopback address by default. So just things like that where people are actually, um, there's things are slowing down to the point where people have enough time to install things, test them out, run them, see if there's something weird that needs to be talked about, have a discussion about it, um, get a proper fix committed. Um, so we're not all like running around trying to do these emergency commits at the last minute. But the source tree is basically still open with like nothing large going in basically. Yeah. And so generally what I do for that is there's some machines that I upgrade pretty regularly and then there's other machines that I don't upgrade regularly at all. But I will sync down the snapshots and packages for the architectures that I run. And um, you know that way you kind of have them for every machine in your house. And then I'll update every machine that I have and run the configurations that I have, look for any kind of problems or anomalies and, and run that kind of stuff. But it's easier to sync the entire 
you know, repository of packages and the snapshots locally first <laughs> mm-hmm. and then go from there. Um, especially if, you know, that winds up being the build that winds up being the release. Yeah. How many <clears throat> uh, different machines and architectures do you have at home? Um, only AMD 64, Spark 64, and ARM. And uh, the ARM, the stuff that I have is not really functional. So um, <clears throat> I have a couple Beagle Bone Blacks that I use. So I'll test stuff on there. But the other stuff, um, you know, not so much. Hmm. I have um, two or three different Spark 64 machines and um, about a half dozen AMD 64 machines. That's a lot. I have yeah. one AMD 64 laptop and one AMD 64 firewall. That's it. <laughs> uh, all my other production servers are AMD 64, and I really only upgrade those when I have to. Yeah. Well, I have to admit, though, the Sun stuff is not something I use all the time. Yeah. I love the like T1000 stuff with all the lights out management and all that kind of stuff. The problem is, is those things are so loud that I just, I can't run them. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I do enjoy using them and I do enjoy like the, um, LDOMs and stuff on them. So usually what happens like come release time is I'll pull those out and I'll wire them up so I can, you know, turn them on and off from work and then I leave them in the living room. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so like I'll turn them on in the middle of the day when I'm at work, you know, maybe I sign in from home uh, over lunch and do this and you know, my wife's like, "Did you turn on a server?" <laughs> it sounds like the vacuum cleaner's on in here. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, I I do the upgrades like that and then they get shut down pretty quickly after I, you know, deploy some applications on them and see if they work and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I should probably talk about that. So, when you do a test with the snapshot that you know we're kind of testing to be the release. Um, you want to install or upgrade and test that process. And I guess that's kind of the thing that we track and we document. We we talk about whether you did a fresh install, whether you did an upgrade, what upgrade mechanism you used, um, and then also kind of like if you're running X, if you installed. Um, um, yeah, I think that's about it, right? Neat. Yeah. X sets and all that kind of stuff. So you just go through those different uh, processes and on each architecture, and then you document that. We have a test file that we document um, who we are and what the machine is, kind of des- of a description of it, and then which of those things we did to it. And uh, one of the things that you um, don't want to do wrong with those T1000s is you don't want to like have to do a fresh install um, the upgrades are easy. You just um, download the BSD.RD and then go through the upgrade process. But a fresh install on one of those, there's no USB. There's no, like, you know, booting from a CD-ROM or anything like that. So you have to netboot the machine. So not P- not PXE, but actual old-school netboot? Well, I don't know what... Um, I don't know what the difference is. Uh, it's been so long since I've done it because I upgraded every single time. Yeah. But you, you have to set up like some file and you have to like run it through some utility and it generates some command. Uh, and then you have to stuff that in your DH clients and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah that sounds kind of like Netboot because PXE, um, you just, it gets like a DHCP 
address and then you tell the DHCP server what the boot, the TFTP boot server is. And then the PXE, like ROM can download the, um, PXE boot file, which is the OpenBSD bootloader. But like with the old school netboot, you have to, um, use like the reverse ARP daemon. Yep. And yep, yep, like yep. all of that baloney that it's such a pain in the ass to, to set up and keep running. And then you have to do like NFS for yep. <laughs> root and like, it just like so old, it's so old and like crafty that, um, it, was never worth it to me to to test any of that stuff. Yeah. So once you get a hard drive or a solid state disk with that on there, you just upgrade and upgrade and upgrade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's basically the process for um, how we test stuff and you know how we work on stuff before the release. And I think that that's you know basically what we do and how things are looked at and you know we run this software all the time so it's not like um hey we kicked out another release hey did you guys notice this weird bug well no because we weren't running it no like we use this stuff all the time (laughs) and i guess in contrast to some other projects we make an actual release every six months we're not just like uh this perpetually like current that's broken so everybody stays on the old stable release and stuff like that yeah, that's a good point. So we do work backwards from the release. So, um, you know, I talked earlier a little bit about how the big changes go in after we um, do a release. But there's kind of like a window there. I'll, I'll talk about this window in a second. But, yeah, we do work backwards. So the release comes and we are preparing for that in advance. And you'll see, you know, a month or two before like if there's a big hackathon or something, we'll say, look, these are the types of changes that we can have and these are the types of changes that we need to wait until after release. So we work backwards from it. We make sure that things are going to be ready in time. And things have been backed out um, <laughs> in the past that you know weren't ready or you know just said, no, 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 it's too close and we can't iron it out. It's got to come out. So, But anyway, right after a release, I said big changes go in, but there's actually a small window. Um, right after we do the release where, um, you know, no new files or directories get added to CVS. Um, and it's kind of like a, a soft unlock, um, where you can make changes. And that's just, if we have to go back and fix something, uh, it's a little easier not to have to undo new files and, and, uh, directories and stuff like that. So, um, and then once everything has been completely solidified, and, you know, Theo says, yeah, we're going to burn the DVDs with this stuff or CDs with this stuff on it. Um, you know, then the tree starts wide open and you can add directories and add files and this and that and the other thing. So, yeah. So like at the actual um, once we approach lock and everything is fully locked and we're testing everything and it all looks good. Theo does a CVS tag um, to tag like OpenBSD underscore five underscore nine mm-hmm. and then he creates a branch which will then be five nine stable so he creates those at the same time and then so that window of uh post unlock where we're adding new things and and all that that's going into the um head cvs head and then if something by chance comes up that actually has to get backported to the um release because there's a small window between when Theo does that tag and branch 
and when he actually um burns the or like makes the iso for the dvds and stuff so there is that small window when things can be put in um but if it misses that window it it can't ship for the release um because theo needs enough time to get that iso made and test it and then um send that off to the like dvd printing company or whatever that that actually burns all those uh dvds mhm yep so yeah that's the release cycle and that's the audit cycle and sending out diffs and all that kind of stuff so i hope uh i hope that covers the bases <laughs> yeah and i guess like what we talked about on a previous episode where we're not uh building vax anymore so there probably won't be a vax uh release for 59 um, and any of those other small architectures. I think there was one other one that got pulled out too that hadn't seen any updates in a long time. Yeah. But it's like, you know, these architectures that nobody or not a lot of people have hardware for, or if they have hardware, it's like broken and they can't find replacement parts for it. It's like during this, this cycle where we have to freeze everything and test it. Like if we don't have any of the hardware ourselves to even test the release, like we can't really assure that it's going to run on anyone else's hardware that actually works. So oftentimes it's better for us to just not push that release and then say, you know, if you still want to try OpenBSD on this hardware that you have, um, just fetch CVS and build it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. There's no sense shipping uh, a bunch of rubbish that no one else kind of cares about <laughs> Yeah. or can, or can take care of. Yeah. We're also kind of getting to the point where, CDs aren't really that useful anymore, at no. least in my opinion. I mean, no machine that I have has a CD or DVD drive. Certainly nothing has a floppy drive. Um, for Halloween, I was a software pirate, and so I like was wearing a pirate outfit and taped all these floppy disks to my shirt. Anyway, so I was trying to find like actual floppy disks, and I can't, I couldn't find any store around me that actually had them. Like no computer store, no Radio Shack, no office supply store. Um, like nothing. So I don't even know where you'd find floppy disks, let alone, you know, have ones that still work and then have machines that, that, uh, can require a, a floppy that can't boot from like a CD or a DVD. <laughs> yeah. So I wish that we would finally just drop those floppy images and stop trying to like make this super tiny Ram disk that can only fit, um, a small handful of drivers onto mm -hmm. a floppy disk because like who's using it anymore? And then once we have the CD and DVD, why do we even need the, um, the, the RAM disk that we have now, like with the small subset of drivers on it, why not put every driver on there? Yeah. Because, um, I was actually playing with a new Chromebook pixel, uh, yesterday mm -hmm. and there's some, uh, bug with the crappy BIOS emulation that Coreboot has the C BIOS thing where the video, uh, RAM or whatever is not set up properly. So as soon as it loads the OpenBSD bootloader, uh, or the kernel's loaded into memory and the kernel tries to print stuff to the console, none of it gets reflected on the screen. So you basically see nothing until the Intel DRM driver loads, and then it's in graphics mode, and then obviously it can start printing stuff. So um, I needed to make a RAM disk with Intel DRM on it. So I basically had to... Um, I compiled the full like generic kernel with every driver in it and then just patched in the, the RAM disk disk image that gets built with the small yep. subset of tools and the installer and all that stuff. And it worked fine. 
So I don't know why we don't um, just drop the whole tiny RAM disk kernel thing and just switch to like a normal size, a regular kernel, and then everybody that boots the installer gets the full uh, set of drivers, and so everyone's network driver works and all that other stuff. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be a little bit more consistent to say, you know, like if you boot up the RAM disk, is your hardware supported? You know, because you don't want to like do an install and be like, oh, well, this wireless thing isn't supported. And then you boot the kernel and you're like, oh, this is supported. You know, that's kind of goofy. The the wireless stuff makes sense because we can't ship the firmware on the RAM disk. But you could at least see if the driver attaches and is detected. And then obviously all the other hardware that doesn't need firmware um, would show up and be usable. So... Uh, I'm hoping that we will uh, transition to that soon, so we can stop doing this. Like, well, this uh, tr- this kernel has like half of the drivers, and you have to like do all these uh, weird changes with um, like if def small kernel and all the code, because not a lot of stuff can fit on the RAM disk. So you have to like compile these different versions of all these utilities that have some functionality ripped out. Mm-hmm. So then when you want to use like a a bsd.rd image as a recovery tool you'll find that like some of the tools don't work the same or they don't have all the functionality or they're just not even there at all so anyway that's just a uh, small rant nice all right so somebody else um emailed in and they were asking us about the um ruby on rails uh setup i think we talked about that several episodes ago and um and basically, one of the what he said was the comment was is that every time I go to do an upgrade, um, all the Ruby on Rails updates and the gems that I have to install are really really painful to get through, and um, I'm I'm no longer using Ruby on Rails, but I did for a time, and that was one of the things that I was really really lazy about. I was like, oh my gosh, I hate going through this because not only wasn't there a new version of a particular gem. You had to replace it with some other, you know, oh, if you're going to do a, a production instance of Ruby on Rails, you need to use this thing now. So um, anyway, I just got really kind of fed up with that myself. And that's one of the things that I like a little bit better about Go. Um, but anyway, I'm not doing Ruby on Rails updates anymore. So I'll let you kind of talk about um, <laughs> how that works and what you do to manage that because um, I'm sure it's not too terribly intrusive to keep all those gems up to date between uh, snapshots and stuff. Yeah. So I actually just went through this like a couple of days ago, migrating a, uh, a server to a new like OpenBSD current. So I had to migrate the Rails application. But anyway, I still have Rails app, some Rails applications that run uh, Rails 2.3. And mm-hmm. then I have others that are on like uh, Rails 3. And then um, like the Lobster site is on Rails 4 something. Um, so basically I give I've given up on the uh like installing gems from openbsd packages and yeah. the maintainer of of most of those um Jeremy has basically agreed and it's like there isn't really any point to um compiling packages for ruby gems cuz they get outdated and if they're all just ruby files there's no point uh to doing that anyway um yeah. some of them make sense like the rmagic uh ruby gem because it has to actually compile c code against uh image magic and all the other libraries and stuff so if you try and do that um just from like uh gem install uh sometimes it won't be able to find those things that it has to compile against did you install like image magic image magic from packages and then gem install and then it would 
use the package you had installed? Yeah, so I, I installed the Ruby interpreter from the the OpenBSD package. So like yep. on obviously on Rails 2.3, I still need to keep Ruby 1.8 around. Um, yep. And we we ship like four or five different versions of Ruby, which is actually pretty cool because like in this case, um, I have to install Ruby 1.8 on a server to get a particular Rails app running. But then I, if I have another Rails app on that server that runs like uh, Rails 3 or it's just, uh, you know, some command line Ruby tool that needs a newer Ruby, you can install all those concurrently. So like when you install the Ruby 1.8 package, the binaries are like Ruby 1.8, IRB 1.8, and all that other stuff. Um, so y- you may have to s- to change some of your like um, command line usage and how you call certain stuff in Rails. Um, because you have to call it like uh, Ruby 1.8 and then the script name instead of just mm-hmm. the script name that's looking for like user local bin or user bin Ruby or whatever, which obviously isn't right on uh, PST anyway. So um, I basically just installed the Ruby interpreter. Uh, Ruby 1.8 still needs the old gems um, package installed. And then once you have uh, gem installed, you can install bundler. So I install that just from the regular... Um, gem utility. And then all of my Rails apps use Bundler to install local versions of the gems that they need into like the, yeah. um, the, so like the Rails apps directory and then it's slash vendor slash, um, gems or whatever. Uh, or vendor bundle, I don't know. So anyway, um, so you don't have to install any like system wide gems, um, because they're probably all going to conflict with each other if you have multiple applications anyway. I think that's what I did too. I um I did Ruby and then Gem from packages and then everything else I managed. But it's probably worth noting that you can have um Ruby one eight and then Ruby I guess one nine and then you can also have Gem one eight and Gem one nine at the mm-hmm. same time too, right? Yeah. And then so like as you were saying, as you said, when you upgrade to a new snapshot, if you have like a different libc version and you need to recompile those gems that uh actually have C code in them. There's, uh, I can't remember what the actual command is, but there's a bundler command that will basically just recompile all of the gems that you need. Yeah. So upgrades are a little bit of work, but I think if you're doing what you were talking about with uh, not using all the um, packages from that are built uh, and using gem to manage them, I think it's not as bad doing it that way. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to remember, I think if you do... If you do bundle, install, and then you have like a gem like rmagic in your, uh, what is it, gem file, mm-hmm. um, and you have that gem installed system-wide, it'll use that instead of compiling its its own version of that. So like for the rmagic gem, I install the OpenBSD package of that because it's compiled against um, image magic and all the graphics libraries and stuff. So when I do like a package add, dash u uh it'll upgrade that r magic gem for me so that way i don't have to do that um i don't have to recompile all that stuff uh for that application it'll just use the system-wide um gem that's installed from the package yeah so i know it's not ruby on rails but um our python or i my python applications um i have some at work and um i did the same thing with them you can have many versions of python installed on openbsd um, I think the latest we go back to right now is 2.8. Um, but anyway, um, I would always install stuff in a virtual environment, and I would only install Python and um, setup tools. 
from packages and then everything else I would just use easy install to to manage from there yeah um, I'm not a Python programmer but I don't uh, it looks like the oldest version we keep is 2.7 and then oh, there's, so it's 2.7 yeah. and then 3.4 so like I don't have any Python stuff uh, like I don't have any Python code myself but some obviously some packages that I installed brought in Python mm-hmm. so I have Python 2.7 and Python 3.4 installed and from what I've seen just in like having to download uh, Python stuff to run other code, um, a lot of stuff is still stuck on Python 2.7. I don't understand yep. why like the community, I guess, is not um, all shifting to Python 3.4 or 3 whatever. Um, and like the Ruby community had this problem for a long time where everybody was stuck on like Ruby 1.8 and uh, yep. nobody wanted to like go to 1.9 and then now it's up to like 2.3 or something. Um, but it seems like everyone has finally gotten off of Ruby 1.8, but a lot of things are still on Python 2.7. Well, um, <laughs> I have something deployed on 2.6 and, um, you can't find that anymore. And then like all of the libraries, the, uh, the eggs, I guess they're called in Python, that I have, like some of them you can't even install from setup tools anymore. <laughs> and I think most people don't even use setup tools anymore. So there's like some other um, ma- uh, package management tool now that people are suggesting that you use. So um, yeah, I can't even find the source for some of these libraries to download and maintain. So um, we're we're trying to migrate a lot of that stuff into um into go and hopefully be able to retire it soon but uh it's a little scary i mean i i keep good backups of that kind of thing because there's no like turning back <laughs> yeah so but yeah i as far as the python not going to 3.2 or 3.3 or 3.4 or whatever it was i think a lot of people were like i have so much invested in this 2. Point whatever series and and I think the change was intrusive enough without um, any tooling to like migrate your applications that people just said, I'm going to stay here um, because this is just way too intrusive. And apparently there's a lot of you know, sweat equity into Python applications that people just said, I'm not going to do that. There's no reason for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And there's no good path to migrate. So I think it was... Maybe a little bit people digging in their heels, but maybe they're just they couldn't do it. I mean, there was just so much inertia yeah. that uh, you know they, there was no clean way to migrate all that stuff. That so they just said I, I can't. Yeah. I think that's what it was, but that was ages ago. I mean, I looked uh, Python two six. I think it was like two thousand six or two thousand eight or something like that. So it's been a long time. Yeah, I mean, like in my case, um, I only need Ruby one point eight to run that particular Rails two point three application. Mm-hmm. But I can't upgrade that application to Rails 3 or 4 or 5 because so much stuff has changed in Rails itself without like rewriting a lot of the application. Mm-hmm. So I'm basically stuck on an old version of Rails and an old version of Ruby that I have to like lug around um, because they've changed so much. And uh, sometimes the same thing happens with like OpenBSD even. Um, I'll have a server running on an old version of OpenBSD, and then like the things that change every six months are so much that uh, it's like a pain in the ass to upgrade that server. So I just leave it on the old version, um, and then like manually do security updates. But mm-hmm. 
the Linux approach where they change, like they refuse to, or Linus, I guess, specifically refuses to break uh, the ABI. So you can have a Linux binary from decades ago and it still works. <laughs> but like, it's, I don't know, it's holding up, you know, future progress because you can't get rid of those old uh, system calls. You can't get rid of, uh, you know, some crappy function and replace it with a more secure one or something like that. Whereas OpenBSD is obviously um, more willing to uh, to break that compatibility for the sake of uh, something better. Yeah, correctness, I think, wins in that. So yeah, um, that's the Ruby on Rails kind of summary. And I did, I did want to talk about, maybe this is boring, maybe we don't have to put this in the show, but um, I did uh, play around with SAS with this uh, Balma IO framework, and they did do a couple more releases and um, it's still really nice. And are they bigger? I'd never, uh, <laughs> just a kind of little tiny bit. <clears throat> and uh, but anyway, the the thing that was really nice is I'd never had a really good reason to use SAS before, and it was just kind of like, oh, now I have to learn another thing in order to, to compile CSS mm-hmm. and um, and minify it. So, but it it, it worked pretty well. Um, Basically, what happens is um, you define a bunch of variables in your SAS file, and then you say, like, um, import Balma, and your variables will overwrite whatever variables they have in their site. So, for instance, I set blue to be something more, you know, dark and rich, and um, I set a primary color and some border colors just to see, and then I imported Balma, and sure enough, compiled it, and my whole site changed, and it was worked really well. So... Yeah, I really like how that uh, little CSS toolkit is coming together. I'm hoping that it stays nice. Yeah. And again, I don't understand why we have MIDI support in our browsers, but the like W3C spec for uh, CSS variables is not mm-hmm. universally accepted. You can't rely on them. But if we had CSS variables, uh, I don't know how much of SAS would even be needed anymore. Yeah. I know that's kind of unfortunate. Well, and because it's the whole thing again, where you've got an, another tool that you have to like kind of put into your development lifecycle. Mm-hmm. You know, like so. I mean, <laughs> for me, I fired up SAS and I was like, "Oh, it compiled some CSS for me." And then I was like, "I made a change," and I'm like, "Oh, now I got to change it again." And then I was like, "Okay, I need the watch flag." Then I ran the watch flag and it. You know, watches my file, and I was like, "Oh, I got to hit refresh every time." And then people have these things wired up with sockets now, so that anytime your CSS file changes, it makes your browser refresh automatically. And uh, I was just kind of holding my head in my hands and thinking, <laughs> "This is what it's come to." Yeah. You know. So, at any rate, uh, that's been my life. <laughs> and you're still here to tell about it. Yeah, I am. Uh, interesting article. Um, somebody posted that I, I was kind of clickbaity, and I I clicked on it, and um, it was talking about how people don't really multitask. Um, they just switch from specific tasks quickly and go back and forth again. And it was uh, some research that they'd done over at MIT, and they basically said like, "Your body hates this, <laughs> and it produces cortisol." Um, because you're stressing it out, and it actually causes permanent brain damage after doing this too often. Um, 
<clears throat> which I may or may not buy into completely. Um, but I, I will say that um, I've met a lot of people who are like, I'm a multitasker. I've got 17 things going on at once. <laughs> and I'm like, you're the most scatterbrained, harebrained idiot I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, I wouldn't trust you to remember to get eggs over your lunch break, you know, yet alone manage 17 things at the same time. But yeah. I got a kick out of it, though. I, um, I kind of wondered if that's what happens in, you know, technology and IT as a whole. You know, we we are asked to change between many, many, many different um, tasks, like hundreds of times a day, just development tasks like, oh, compile the CSS, refresh the browser, observe the change, edit the HTML, go back to the CSS, you know, and you're doing these context switches 20 or 30 times a minute, and I wonder if that starts to wear on your, um, on your poor brain after a while. Sure. And then like if something goes wrong and you need to actually dig into one of those tools, now all of a mm-hmm. sudden you're like finding a bug in the SAS compiler or whatever instead of, you know, just editing your CSS file in your text editor and having native variable support. So yep. then it's like the SAS compiler or whatever is broken and then it's some component of that because it was written in uh some language that uh you know encourages you to have tons of dependencies on these other tiny packages, which I won't name, but yes, less dependencies yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, that's what I talked about in, uh, at EuroBSTCon is, you know, I, I stood up there in, all the, in front of all those people and I'm like, if you guys are sitting here looking at this and wondering, like, this looks really simple and um, it's because I've worked really hard to make it this simple and you know, I don't. I don't think anybody was like taken back by that. But what I meant was, is you remember Java, like J two E E this, and you have twenty three hundred lines of XML, and we have, you know, fourteen different um, jar files, and all this Java, and it's all like complex and enterprise grade, and this and that and the other thing. Then you fire it up, and it takes seventy five seconds just to get things to listen on a socket, and then you hit the website for the first time, and it takes about thirty seconds before a page comes up, and you know that's what people were pushing for at the time and i said i want simplicity i want this to to work and you know maybe people appreciated it I, a lot of people came and talked to me and they seemed like they appreciated it but i worked really hard to get it unenterprise mm-hmm. <laughs> for the very things you were just talking about with sas compilers and you know the tools and dependency management and all that kind of stuff it it just becomes a nightmare i'm a team of one and you know that from yep. working the way you do it's I mean, you think about the costs associated with those types of dependencies. Every tool you incur is is another nth um, degree of complexity to the entire project. Sure. Um, I mean, I was uh, updating some Objective C code the other day for a uh, for my iOS application, and I went to update a third party library that I'm using, mm-hmm. and I come to find out that like the uh, dependency like tool that everyone that all these libraries are using to easily like uh it's like the equivalent of bundler basically to like download a library and integrate it into your project that like the one that i've been using and that all these libraries have been using for years is no longer cool and that there's a new one and it's Mm -hmm. like so not only are the dependencies themselves changing but the stupid tool that you have to use to download all of them and manage them is changing too so you have to like upgrade that tool all the time now because they keep adding stupid features to it it's like what is going on this is ridiculous there's a uh 
article that was making the rounds uh, this week entitled Kill Your Dependencies, uh, and it was extremely uh, well upvoted on lobsters and I think Hacker News too. So a lot of people seem to agree with it, but there's like, who, obviously there's people that are introducing all these dependencies and that they think it's a good idea. Well, and then there's tools to manage the dependencies, right? So now we have dependency management tools with configuration files, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just another piece of inertia that, you know, you're going to have trouble moving away from. When when I first started writing code, being nostalgic here, um, we, we specifically talked about um, what happens when we need to replace this particular part with something different. Either we need to rewrite it or it needs to be changed to something else. We gave consideration to that. Uh, how do you change out your storage backend or your, you know, if you're going to change um, JavaScript frameworks or for whatever reason, mm-hmm. how do you make your code in such a way that you can do that? Now it's like, how can you interdependent, how can you uh, intermingle so many dependencies in such a way that they'll all still work and you don't have to think about it? And that's a, a stark contrast to me in my mind from where we were 15 years ago. Yeah. It's weird, like on Unix, every program basically that needs to send email opens user sbin sendmail dash t or i or whatever, and they just expect that the interface is going to be the same. So any new mail server that pops up just implements that same interface, and then mm-hmm. that way you don't have to change any applications. And But now it's like like you were saying, like all these dependencies are added to a project, but none of them are interchangeable with anything else. So you're not That's gaining right. any like, oh, I can just take this component out and try this one. I can replace the SQL server with something else. It's like, it, you know, to, to change that component, you have to change the entire application. It's like, well, then what's the point? Yep, 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 yep. Indeed. So I guess we're all doomed, which I seem to say every episode. Yeah, I know. I, I, I do sense, though, that there's a really unhealthy change happening in technology in a, in a lot of capacities uh, in this area. I think complexity management has become a thing now. And, um, you know, as things continue to scale, that's one area. And then as we uh, continue to pile on, I'll use that word pile on, we're just like, oh, I'll just use another thing that does this, that does another thing that does this, that does another thing that does this. And um, I think that that's doing, creating a lot more complexity in many areas. And um, so, yeah, I mean, now we have bigger messes that we're scaling more, more and more times. And then, <laughs> so we're really growing exponentially the wrong direction with the mess. And that's one of the things that... <clears throat> I called out at EuroBSDCon is um, I kind of said, look, an OpenBSD install takes me when I'm doing it by hand and taking my time five minutes mm-hmm. and I can encrypt the, the system disk and and then I can get uh, this web environment, this development environment up and running on here in about, you know, five, ten minutes. And I thought that that was really, really remarkable. And there was kind of like a little buzz going on about Docker. And they're like, man, you can get fire up a new Docker instance in 45 minutes. And I, and I, well, I don't know anything about Docker. I shouldn't pick on it. I shouldn't say what its strengths and weaknesses are. But 
if you use the time it takes to set up those environments as, a, as kind of a metric for complexity and um, how it scales in production, I think that, you know, I, I think that that's probably at a disadvantage to what I'm doing now, you know? I mean, we need to have less moving pieces that we scale out more times <laughs> more easily. And, and that's, to me, what will scale and grow well. I mean, if you hire 20 developers and it takes you three and a half hours to set each of them up, and I think that's being very, very, very uh, generous, that's, that's a good thing. But um, if you take 20 new developers and it takes three or four days to get their entire development environment up and running, which is more commonly what I see, I mean, I, I think that that is not going to scale well in production either when you have 10,000 machines or 20,000 machines or whatever to deploy this particular application on. Yeah. I think it says something that uh, your application or whatever is like so complicated to set up that the answer is to provide an entire virtual machine with all of the dependencies and stuff in it and then like yep. ship that around and be like oh it's just a docker image and it's like well what is all the crap that's inside of there like what happened <laughs> to just giving me the application and then i install like the libraries for it and, and get it all compiled it's kind of yeah. ridiculous i mean you can't audit that you can't manage that how do you keep track of security um updates for that you don't even know what's on it yet alone what version it is or yeah yeah, it makes no sense. And and I'm not a fan of running virtualization in a production environment for web stuff. Um, a little bit I like for, you know, is the idea of isolation between instances of a, an application. But as a whole, that's not what's happening here. Um, you know, they're just running things out there for the sake of, you know, putting them in a VM for ease of deployment. So, yeah. Um, one of those things where, like, you know, I, I will run several instances where I can kind of keep an eye on one of them or upgrade one of them and see, you know, if I improve something or if it causes errors. Um, but I just don't see the benefit of adding more complexity. Virtualization in a production web environment is is so intrusive. Um, I've got several people logged into my workstation, and uh, they use my OpenBSD VM all day long, and it's it's amazing. Um, when it hangs for just a couple seconds, um, you know, people are like, what is going on with your machine? <laughs> and I'm like, we do this in production. People do this in production. And they say that this is the solution. This is the way to do this. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, we notice it, you know, a couple dozen times a day. How often does it happen, you know, when you have a machine that's really, really loaded up? Yeah. You know, where you're trying to get maximum throughput. I mean, people work on garbage collectors being super lightweight. Uh, so that there's no pause and they only take a split second, um, you know, so that they're, you know, not uh, pegging the CPU or whatever. But then we have these VMs that will pause the entire operating system for, you know, several hundred milliseconds or a few seconds at a time. It's insane. Yeah. I guess in the opposite end of the spectrum, you have projects like uh, Mirage, which implements an entire operating system in OCaml. Uh, so you're going like, I mean, it's pretty cool because like, that's a good way to reduce all those dependencies, I guess, is to actually not run any of that software at all. And then you have mm -hmm. like, uh, the hypervisor actually booting your OCaml application and your TCP stack is written in OCaml 
and it's like the smallest, lightest thing that you could possibly run for security or per- performance or just dependencies, I guess, in this case. But, um, yeah. yeah, I think things like that are pretty neat. Yeah. Well, all right. We should wrap this show. Um, I just want to take another moment to thank you guys for writing in. We really appreciate your suggestions. We appreciate your feedback, and we appreciate you listening. If there's anything you guys would like to hear us talk about, please let us know. Yep. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM. Subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Yep, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. And sometimes on Google+, Plus, ranting about things. I am on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs.org.